All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. In this session, we're continuing our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking specifically at 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17. And here in this section, Paul launches into another thanksgiving. And so if we just keep the flow of thought in mind, chapter 1, after the introduction and greeting, began with a thanksgiving that then led to an encouragement and a bit of a warning and a promise of vindication. Out of that, then we moved into chapter 2 that offered uh, uh, really an encouragement, an exhortation to not be led astray about the whole man of lawlessness and the coming of the day of the Lord. Well, here we launch into a second thanksgiving and prayer that is directly tied to everything he just said regarding the coming of the day of the Lord, the man of lawlessness, believing the truth, and all of that. And so this is driven by a concern to motivate steadfastness in faith, steadfastness to the truth and the faith in Jesus. That's the, that's the really driving goal of this section. So this is what Paul says, beginning in verse 13. He says, But we should always give thanks to God for you. Again, stated very similarly to the first Thanksgiving at the beginning of the letter, where he said, we ought always to give thanks for you. Here, the same thing. We we should always give thanks. And it's not because Paul's not or he's feeling duty-bound. It's that he, he just is so grateful for them. He said, it's just right. It's appropriate. Um, and right to always give thanks to God for you, for the Thessalonians. And notice, always, all the time. And so whenever Paul's talking to God about the Thessalonians, he does so with gratitude. It is a recurring theme in his prayers for the Thessalonians. He goes on and says that he should give thanks to God for them. And then he, he describes them like this, as brothers and sisters beloved by the Lord. Now, Phrases like that we so often just rush by as almost little tack-on phrases when reading the Bible. But we shouldn't do that. Pay attention to that. Brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord. Paul is putting in there an identity description that uh, is true about them and is true about us if we're in Christ as well. That we are beloved. We are God's dearly loved uh, children. And and. This is part of our identity. It's part of who we are. This identity to Scripture is true of them and true of us. We are beloved by the Lord. And so don't rush over that phrase. Sit in that and soak in that and let it settle into your identity because that's why Paul puts this kind of phrase in there. He wants them to know who they are and who we are. We are brothers and sisters beloved by the Lord. So Paul says we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved uh, brothers and sisters. Because, here's the reason, why is Paul thankful? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And so Paul is thanking God for them specifically because they're part of the elect. They're part of God's chosen people. And once again, this is another belonging term, like beloved of the Lord states their relationship to God. They belong to him and they're loved by him. Well, now they're also chosen by him, right? That they're part of his chosen people. They're part of the elect. And this really bolsters uh, their sense of belonging and identity, particularly when you're a very small group 
in a rather large city, Thessalonica, and you're experiencing all sorts of social pressure and opposition and hostility, these sorts of phrases remind you that God has not rejected you or abandoned you, that you're in the right place, you're beloved by him, and you belong to him, you're chosen by him. Now, notice here in this translation, the New American Standard, that uh, it, it's translated, chosen you from the beginning. But if you have, uh, say, the NIV opened up, it'll say God has chosen you as first fruits. And so we have a rather significant textual variation that leads to these two different translations. But in reality, in the Greek text, that's only one letter difference. Those two words from the beginning or as first fruits, one letter difference. Uh, an S at the end of the word or an in at the end of the word, and that's the difference. And the textual manuscripts are, are significantly split, and there's no clear-cut way was to determine whether it was originally S at the end of the word or N at the end of the word. And so you get major translations, NIV and New American Standard, uh, translating it differently because they're making different decisions on, we think S was the way the word was originally ended. Oh, we think in was the way the word originally ended, and thus they they make this their decision based on that because there's no clear-cut answer in this case. And, and so it's not massively problematic here because both those concepts theologically are true. Both show up in Paul's letters. Like God had chosen, for example, Ephesians 1, from the foundations of the world. That's the idea of from the beginning. Or you see in uh, Corinthians that Paul calls the the Christians as, you know, that, that they're part of the first fruits. And so this idea of being first fruits. Now, first fruits is never really used with the idea of calling or choosing, but it is a concept that shows up in Paul's letters. Uh, and so it's just hard to know which one was the original, and theologically doesn't make a, a radical difference. So let's not get lost on that. The point here is that they're part of God's chosen people. God has chosen you either as first fruits or from the beginning. And then Paul goes on, for salvation, through sanctification, and faith. Um, that's the flow of the last half of verse 13, that God has chosen you for salvation, unto salvation, to be delivered, to be rescued, uh, to be saved. He has chosen you unto salvation, um, which I think it's important just to point out that uh, we hear these phrases, and depending which theological school we're from, it it, uh, it you know like it confirms our theological school, it raises questions for our school. But notice here, the main thing he doesn't say is he doesn't say God has chosen you for faith. Now, he hasn't he hasn't chosen to give you faith. It's chosen you for salvation, and I think that's important because um, we need to pay attention to these kinds of phrases that say things like this that. God's chosen people are the saved. They are the ones who are saved, and that's going to be the destiny or the outcome of their being chosen, not the means of how they're chosen. And Paul will actually go on and talk a little bit about that. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he talked more about uh, some of the indicators of their chosenness. But here he's simply saying you were chosen for salvation, unto salvation, and you were chosen through 
the sanctification by the Spirit, and sanctification is this idea of being made holy. That's the nature of that word. So being consecrated, becoming holy. The word sanctification is from the same root word as the word holy and holiness. And so sanctification is the the process of becoming holy. So you were saved for salvation through sanctification, through the process of becoming holy by the Spirit. And so the Spirit is the one who sanctifies us. The Spirit is the one who enables and affects sanctification. In Paul's uh, other letters, you see this, for example, in uh, Galatians chapter 5 with walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. Then he lists off the deeds of the flesh and then he lists off the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit that the Spirit produces is the sanctification. It's how the Spirit is making us holy and what he's producing in us as holiness. And so we are sanctified by the work of the Spirit and you're, sa- you're saved through sanctification and through faith in the truth, in contrast to what he said at the end of the last paragraph about those who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness, uh, that those who did not welcome and accept the truth, the believers are those who welcome the truth. They put their faith, their confidence in the truth. They believed it. And so they are chosen to salvation through these two means, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and through believing in the truth. Now, verse 14 really continues the thought, just for the sake of making it easier to read, they've started a new sentence there. But in Greek, it's not a new sentence. And so it's really continuing the same thought. They've captured that by how they've set up this new sentence. So verse 14 reads, it was for this. Literally in Greek, as I noted, not a new sentence. And so it's literally unto which. Uh, And that unto which, this Uh, Or here in the translation, it was for this, that which or this really refers to everything he just said in verse 13. This being beloved by God, this being part of his chosen people, this being chosen unto salvation and through sanctification and through faith, right? All of that, a whole complex of ideas seems to be what he has in mind when he says it was for this or unto which he has called you through our gospel, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, God called them, he says, through the gospel. That was the means of the calling. Um, The gospel is how God calls people into his family, into his chosen people. And so it was for this, for this experience of salvation and sanctification and faith that God called you to himself through our gospel through Paul's preaching the message about Jesus being king and Lord and uh, calling people to repent and uh, believe in him and trust him. And so through preaching the gospel, God called the Thessalonians into his family and he called them to the end that with the goal or the result that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that, that the goal of Uh, their response to the gospel, the end result being aimed at through their response to the gospel is to obtain, to receive the glory of our Lord Jesus. What Paul seems to be saying is, we Christians, God's people, will share in Jesus's glory. We will 
we will be welcomed into and invited into and participate in and share in the very glory of King Jesus himself. So when Jesus returns and his kingdom comes in fullness and all things are made new, we who are God's people are going to experience that. We're going to participate in that. We will receive and share in the very glory of Jesus himself. And so in short, what Paul is saying here in verses 13 and 14 is that he's thanking God because the Thessalonians are embodying really everything that Paul preached for and preached about and that they they evidence that they're fully part of God's chosen people and uh, they are moving to salvation. They're going to experience the glory of Jesus. And so what he says then in verse 15 is because of all of that, because of who you are and because uh, of your faith in the truth and because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, because you're God's chosen people, because of all of that, he says, you need to stand firm. And so this tells us really what the goal not only of this section is, but even in view of the fact that this flows out of the man of lawlessness passage, this shows us the great concern with that passage. Don't be led astray. Don't get off track. Don't be shaken in your faith. Stand firm. And so he says in verse 15, so then, therefore then, right? Like here's the big conclusion. Therefore then, brothers and sisters, Stand firm, um, plant your feet and be steadfast, be immovable, stand firm and hold on to the traditions which you were taught. And that word traditions doesn't have the sense of, you know, like, oh, well, it's not trustworthy. It's just mere tradition. It's more uh, that word captures more the way something was taught, that it was passed on, passed on from Jesus to his apostles, from the apostles to the churches they started. That's the emphasis of this word traditions, that these are things that have been handed on to you. And so hold on to those things, these very traditions that were passed on to you by us. And he says, whether by word of mouth, like when we were there with you and we were teaching you in person, or even from letter from us, those traditions are truth. Those traditions are what root you, so hold tightly to those. And so this is his concern with this whole section. This was his concern, really, as I noted, with the man of lawlessness passage, that he even began that passage in verse 2 here of chapter 2 by saying, I don't want you to be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, right? He doesn't want them to be shaken. He wants them to stand firm. He doesn't want them to be disturbed. He wants them to hold on to the traditions they were taught from Paul and his team. And so his great concern is to really call them to steadfastness in the faith. Now, having done that, then in verses 16 and 17, he actually um, offers a blessing, another prayer of blessing on their behalf. And so this is what he says in verse 16 and 17. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. And so another prayer of blessing for them that really revolves around the same idea of standing firm, being steadfast, being strong in the faith. And notice how that prayer begins. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. So this prayer is addressed to Jesus and God together, right? And in what follows, he's he's asking Jesus and God to 
to act to bring them comfort and strength. And we're so used to thinking in those terms, if we've been in the church for a while, that we maybe miss something of great significance. And that's this, that Paul is a Jewish man, and right, the fundamental Jewish belief was recited morning and evening in the Shema, Hear, O Israel, um, the Lord is God, and the Lord is one, right? This belief that God is one. And yet, here's Paul, this deeply devout, devoted Jew, pairing Jesus, a human being, uh, right alongside God, our Father, together, and asking the two of them to act on behalf of these people. It's an implicit acknowledgement, in other words, that Jesus and God are equal. Um, prior to meeting Jesus and coming to faith in him, Paul couldn't have written a sentence like this. But now, now he, he knows who Jesus is. And as he says in Colossians, that all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. So now he's comfortable pairing our Lord Jesus Christ with God our Father as the one true God. And so may our Lord, which by the way, the word Lord kurios in Greek, um, is the, the word routinely used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to translate Yahweh from the Hebrew. And so Paul's comfortable with that. Um, so may our Lord Jesus Christ, Christos is the Greek version of the word uh, Mashiach, right? Messiah. And so refers to him being king. And so Jesus is Lord and king and God our Father. And then he says this about God and Jesus, presumably, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. And so God is the one loving us. Don't, don't let that become so familiar that it doesn't always uh, amaze us, right? Like uh, God, the great, infinite, almighty God, the maker of the entire universe is the one loving you, loving us. So God is the one who has loved us, and he's also the one who has given us eternal comfort. This idea of comfort um, is uh, th this idea of making you strong, right? Like helping you to, to be fortified and be encouraged and be built up. And so God's the one who's given us eternal comfort, um, not just eternal in the sense of ongoing, but eternal in the sense of quality, the, the kind of comfort that comes from eternity, from an eternal person, God himself. And so God's the one who has given us eternal comfort, and he's given us good hope, um, a real, true, good hope. And hope in the Bible isn't just wishful thinking. It's like, gee, I sure hope I get. It's uh, it's a confident expectation, and God's given us that. He's given us a good hope of a grand future that hasn't happened yet, so it's still hope, but we we're counting on it and we expect it to happen because God is trustworthy. So God has given us his love, he's given us his comfort, he's given us hope, and he's done all that by grace, by grace. Grace is the quality of God which enables him to give us all these things in spite of our weaknesses and in spite of our failings, God graciously has given us all these things. And so God has done this for us by grace. And so now what's his request? Verse 17 tells us, what is he asking Jesus and God to do? Well, he's asking Jesus to comfort and strengthen your hearts. And that word comfort is the same word 
uh, already said that God has given us eternal comfort. So now may he actually right, like enable you to, to stand strong in that comfort. So may he comfort you and strengthen you, now, like establish you, make you strong and stable is the idea. So may he comfort and strengthen your hearts. Um, and heart routinely in the Bible is not just the place of emotion, the seat of emotions, as it is in American English. Um, hearts is routinely like the control center of the person. It's more almost like your will. It's like the control center. So may he comfort and strengthen your hearts, the thing that drives you, the thing that is the wellspring of life for you. May he comfort and strengthen your heart in every good work and word. In other words, may he make you strong and uh, fortified and built up so that you can continue to uh, live for him and serve him in your life and everything you do and everything you say you would please him and you would do it in his way that's his prayer and so again it really revolves around them continuing in their faithfulness to jesus and that's what his heart is here in this simple little thanksgiving and prayer flowing out of the man of lawlessness passage that he, he doesn't want them to to lose their way because of some false report about that. He doesn't want them to get off track about that. He wants them to be rooted, planted, strong, stand firm, be steadfast and faithful in living for and serving Jesus day in and day out. So before we leave this section, just a handful of simple reflections by way of implication from this section. And you probably already have some of your own as we just walked through that, that prayer and that thanksgiving. But this passage reminds us who saves us? God saves us, not ourselves. He alone is able to make salvation happen. We aren't powerful enough to create salvation. We're not powerful enough to create never-ending life. God alone is immortal. He's the one who can give immortality. God not only is the one who saves us, God is the one who sanctifies us here. So we can't sanctify ourselves. We need the Spirit's help to do that. Now, we're not able to create truth. Truth only exists because God is truth. And thus, this whole saving complex of believing the truth, being sanctified, and, and being chosen for salvation is all a gift of God. It all derives from God and comes from God. So God saves us. God saves us, and we owe everything to him. Another reflection is it, this text also reminds us of our responsibility. God may be the one saving us, um, but we're responsible to stay true to the truth. We're responsible to stand firm and to be faithful. And so we have a responsibility in this salvation as well. And so God saves us, and we're responsible to remain faithful, to stand firm, to hold on to the traditions, as Paul says here. And yet, uh, yet a final reflection and yet this, this simple little section also reminds us that God is the one who enables us to stand firm and to stay true. He's the one who, um, Paul believes, can, can strengthen us and can comfort us and fortify us so that we can, uh, we can stay faithful in every good work and word. And so there's this interplay of human responsibility and God's activity and God actually uh, enabling the very faithful activity that we want. And so our salvation is uh, from beginning to end a work of God, which we receive simply by trusting him and believing in him. And so we have a responsibility to play 
but God is at work enabling us to be faithful to that very responsibility.